This evening, we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Job. With this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Job chapter 24. And as you make your way to the 24th chapter of Job, I want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that the bulk of this book is centered around a heated conversation that took place between a man named Job and his three friends, namely Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. I should also remind you that the topic of this debate between Job and his three friends, well, the topic was based on the resolution that Job deserved the punishment that the Lord had poured out upon him. And it was with this assertion that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they tried to convince Job that he needed to repent and then return to the Lord. Well, in response to their arguments, Job opposed their assertions by insisting that he didn't deserve the punishment of the Lord because he wasn't living in some sort of secret sin. And in this, in this way, Job actually fell into a false dichotomy by assuming that uh, the only two arguments were based on the belief that God was the one who was punishing him. And, and so, you know, on the one side, these guys were saying, well, you deserved God's punishment. And Job saying, no, I don't deserve God's punishment. And in this way, we find this false dichotomy, uh, which is based on the belief that God is the one punishing when that had yet to be proved. In this way, you know, Job was actually failing to offer the strongest defense by requiring his friends to first prove that his pain and suffering was actually a punishment that was coming from the Lord. And, and rather than rebutting their assertions with this strongest argument, Job enters into a three-round debate, which is based on the false dichotomy, which is summed up in the question, did God deserve, uh, or did Job, I should say, did Job deserve the punishment that God was pouring out on him? And that was the basis for this uh, false dichotomy. And sadly, you know, all four of these guys, Job and his three friends, they were all failing to realize that Job Job's suffering was actually caused by Satan. It wasn't God pouring out a punishment upon Job. No, it was, it was caused by Satan. And while it's true that the Lord was allowing Satan to you know, carry out this attack on the family, the flocks, and the flesh of Job, it's also true that the Lord has a righteous reason for the times when he allows his servants to suffer the evil attacks of the enemy. And with that being the case, well, we'd all do well to remember that the trials and the tribulations that we endure while we're here in this world, well, they've been permitted. They've been permitted by the Lord and for the purpose of our perfection. So rather than blaming God for all of our pain and suffering, I think that we ought to look to the Lord for the wisdom and the strength that we need so that we can gain the victory over our evil enemy while also realizing that God has a reason for the evil that he allows. Well, rather than looking to the Lord for the help that he needed to walk in the victory of faith, Job decided to focus on the evil people who were being used by the enemy uh, there in his period of time. And in an attempt to prove his position, which I'll remind you was based on that false dichotomy where we find Job presenting his friends with an argument, which is based on the question, why am I being punished? 
While God allows people you know, who are evil to get away with all manner of wickedness, we, we find Job kind of you know, just settling into this argument, and it's with this, with this uh, you know, as our focus. I want to consider how Job is, is putting this argument here in the 24th chapter. And if you would look with me here at Job 24, verse 1, here Job begins by asking, Since times are not hidden from the Almighty, why do those who know him see not his days? Now, as we consider this question, I must confess that this, you know, translation, it's a bit clunky. I love the NKJV, but this translation of verse 1, it's a bit clunky. And so, in order to grasp the question that Job is actually asking here, I want to consider the New Living Translation, which puts it in this way. Why doesn't the Almighty bring the wicked to judgment? Why must the godly wait for him in vain? Now, that makes a whole lot more sense. Job was wanting to know why the Lord was allowing those who are wicked to continue getting away with all of their wicked ways while simultaneously allowing his faithful servants to suffer in vain. I also like the way that the scholars who created the New International Version of the Bible rendered verse 1. They put it like this. Why does the Almighty not set times for judgment? Why must those who know him look in vain for such days? As we consider the translation of Job's inquiry here, we must not fail to notice that this question was more loaded than my plate at the last church potluck. Now, first of all, listen, Job was assuming that God had failed to set a specific time to judge those who refused to repent of their wickedness. He's saying, hey, you know, did God miss the day that he was supposed to judge all these wicked people? You know, is God failing to set a day for judging these people? And so he's assuming that God's reasons for allowing the sins of wicked people to continue was at best ineffective and ultimately unfruitful. To sum it up with simplicity, you know, Job was asking his friends to explain why God was punishing him for allegedly engaging in evil deeds while simultaneously allowing those who are truly evil to go unpunished. And he's wondering, when is the day of judgment finally going to get here? And is there, is there such a day? Is there such a time when wicked people will get their comeuppance? We might put it like this, you know, Job seems to be asking, why does God punish his servants while allowing the servants of Satan to continue engaging in all of their evil schemes? Now, the chances are, I'm guessing we've all struggled with similar questions at some point in time. It's my guess that we're beginning to, to ask these sorts of questions more and more, and especially as we see the mystery of lawlessness continuing to increase here in our day and age. And whether we're talking about the increase, increasing rate of violent crimes happening all throughout our country, or, or whether we're talking about the millions of Christians who are currently being persecuted throughout the world, There are many who are wondering now why God is allowing his servants to suffer while allowing the servants of Satan to carry out all of their evil deeds. And, and, you know, many are asking, when is judgment finally going to come? Well, with all this in mind, I want to continue to consider Job's perspective, which is found here in Job chapter 24. If you would, let's pick up our study beginning at verse 2, because here uh, Job goes goes on to declare this. He says, Some remove landmarks, they seize flocks violently and feed on them. They drive away the donkey of the fatherless. They take the widow's ox as a pledge. They push the needy off the road. 
All the poor of the land are forced to hide. Indeed, like wild donkeys in the desert, they go out to their work searching for food. The wilderness yields food for them and for their children. They gather their fodder in the field and glean in the vineyard of the wicked. Now, here in these verses, we find Job, he's describing the evil deeds of those who are lying and cheating and stealing there in his day and age. And I want to consider the example that he shows there in verse 2. There Job mentions the evil people who steal land by moving boundary markers. The Lord actually addresses this uh, criminal activity in Deuteronomy chapter 19. It's verse 14 where he declares, You shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set, in your inheritance, which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. According to the Lord there, those who attempt to steal land by altering the landmarks that the Lord established, well, they're they're, they're, they're actually engaging in an act of evil as they sin against their neighbors. And not only against their neighbors, but against the Lord. The Lord is the one who established the boundaries. And so those who move the landmarks are actually sinning against God. And listen, the Lord went on to place a curse on those who actually engage in this act of evil. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 27, it's verse 17, where the Lord declares, Cursed is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Christian, listen, the Lord is the one who gave the land of promise to the children of Israel. Not only that, but the Lord is the one who defined the boundaries that belong to each of the 12 tribes. Therefore, the one, uh, you know, the one who moves those boundaries are actually sinning against the Lord. And the Lord is the one who warned them about the curse which would come upon those who stole land by moving ancient boundaries. And with that being the case, you know, we can be certain that the Lord is going to punish those who are even today trying to steal the land of promise from the children of Israel. And listen, those who are trying to remove the, uh, the, the Israelites from the land that God has given them, those who are trying to push them out of the land, are actually inviting a curse upon themselves as they try to steal the land that the Lord promised to Israel as an everlasting inheritance. That's what the Lord says, that this is an everlasting inheritance. According to the Lord, the land between the river and the sea, the river Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea, the Lord says that land belongs to Israel. Therefore, we shouldn't be surprised as we watch the Lord punishing the people who are trying to steal the land of Israel's inheritance. Now, I'm guessing we all hate hearing about civilian casualties on both sides of this conflict. I don't think anybody here tonight wants, wants babies dying on either side of the border. And you, you must not fail to realize that the enemies of Israel have sworn to wipe the Israelites from the face of the map. That's their stated goal. That being the case, the state of Israel, well, they're left with two options here. And they're, they're both horrible options. You see, they can either destroy Hamas and, and everyone in between there, or, or they can allow Islamic jihadists to destroy them. There's, someone's getting destroyed here. And listen, if somebody sets out to destroy you and your only option is either to be destroyed or to destroy them, uh, what are you going to do? You're going to wait to be destroyed? Israel's left with a horrible option that, that, that they can either you know, pursue Hamas and, and destroy them utterly or just sit there and wait to be utterly destroyed. 
Listen, the, the, the people who have publicly proclaimed time and time again that they're going to wipe Israel from the face of the map, well, they shouldn't be upset when Israel turns around and says, no, we're not going to allow that. And, and, and when they turn to fight against their enemies, well, their enemies shouldn't be surprised by it. Well, as we turn our attention back to Job's description of those who engage in all manner of wickedness, we can see here that the evil people that he was referring to, well, they're not only willing to steal land that didn't belong to them by moving ancient boundaries, but according to Job, they were also stealing livestock so that they could put the animals you know, to work in their own pastures. And this reminds me of the Sabian raiders who invaded the land of Job and stole his donkeys after killing his servants. And not only that, it was back in chapter 1 when we learned about the Chaldean robbers who stole his camels and killed his servants. Knowing that those wicked men were out there stealing from anyone they could. And, and they were even stealing from those who were impoverished. Job wanted to know why the Lord was allowing those evil people to steal the orphan's donkeys and the widow's ox and these sorts of things. He's asking his friends, hey, if, if, if God's quick to punish me and, and I'm not engaging in any sort of real evil acts here, why isn't God just as quick to go punish the Sabian raiders and, and the Chaldean robbers? Not only that, but in verses 4, 5, and 6, where Job describes the way that the same wicked people were targeting the poor. And just to be clear, listen, it was common in this day and age for those with large amounts of land who were growing you know, their crops and whatnot. You know, they, they would allow the poor to glean the fruits from the corners of their crops. And, and, and so you know, this was something that was pretty standard practice, that those who were poor could come along and just uh, glean from the corners and whatnot and, and, and take food for, for you know, their families. But then when it came time for the harvest, these wicked people would come and attack the poor and they would take what they wanted for themselves. And Job here is asking, why does God allow this? Why does God allow these wicked people to push the poor from the side of the road as they're gleaning from the crops and then take everything that they can? Not only that, but the same evil people would also solve their own financial struggles through uh, slavery and through uh, thievery. And, and I want to consider how Job puts it here in Job chapter 24. Let's pick up our study beginning, beginning there at verse 7. Here he declares, They spend <clears throat> the night naked without clothing and have no covering in the cold. They are wet with the showers of the mountains and huddle around the rock for want of shelter. And some snatch the fatherless from the breast and take a pledge from the poor. Now, uh, here in these verses, we find Job, he's describing the wicked works of, of evil people who set out to solve their own financial issues by engaging in human trafficking. Here's, here's these people who, you know, some think are, are like, you know, uh, Bedouins who, who, you know, sleep without clothes at night. But I, I'm of the opinion that these are people who eventually find themselves destitute and struggling with financial needs, maybe after engaging in some level of gambling and that sort of thing. And so how do they solve this problem? Well, they snatch the fatherless from the breast. What does that mean? Well, you know, they, they enter a home where there's, there's no man to defend, you know, the family, and they steal the child even from, you know, the, the nursing mom. Rather than working, you know, for a living, they'd rather just kidnap those who are fatherless so that they can profit from the enslavement of the child. And as we consider this, and, and, and as we consider you know, how horrific this is, it's really sad to say that not much has changed since the, you know, the days of Job. And, and you might not know this, but human trafficking, is, it's still big business. 
Human, human trafficking is still big business. As a matter of fact, the International Labor Organization reports that forced labor generates at least $150 billion in illegal profits every year. Forced labor. In other words, a child is taken and put to work you know, uh, illegally. And, and listen, this includes 4 million children who end up being trafficked every single year and sold into some form of slavery. This is horrific. And what's even worse is that our own government has apparently lost contact with at least a third of the unaccompanied migrant minors that they've handed over to NGOs who placed those kids in the custody of unvetted sponsors. They took kids who came across the border illegally and, 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 and they put the, those kids into the hands of NGOs and those NGOs then put those kids into the hands of so-called sponsors, many of whom weren't vetted properly. Here's how Senator Josh Hawley explains this. He said this last year when he declared, they go to factories, they go to slave labor. I've written to the FBI and asked the FBI, where are the 80,000 plus children this administration has lost? They don't know. They don't know. As of last year, the Biden administration was unable to locate 85,000 minors who came across our southern border. And listen, if those numbers hold true throughout this year, then what this means is that more than 127,000 minors are now missing since Biden was installed into the White House. Here's how one HHS whistleblower named Tara Lee Rhodes described it last year. She was a Health and Human Services employee, and she came forward and declared this, I thought I was going to help place children in loving homes. Instead, I discovered that children are being trafficked through a sophisticated network that begins with recruiting in their home country, smuggled to the U.S. border, and ends when Office of Refugee Resettlement delivers a child to a sponsor. Some sponsors are criminals and traffickers and members of transnational criminal organizations. Some sponsors view children as commodities and assets to be used for earning income. This is why we are witnessing an explosion of labor trafficking. How horrific is that? If this whistleblower, who, again, worked for Biden's Health and Human Services, is correct, then there seems to be reason for us to believe that there are members of the Biden administration who are being enriched by a sophisticated child trafficking network. And much like Job, you know, I struggle with the fact that the Lord is allowing these evil people to commit these horrific crimes. And I can't tell you who they are. I can't pinpoint this person or that, but it certainly seems to be happening more and more in this country. And, and, and you know, as a Christian, I think, well, why is God allowing this? Why does God allow these, these horrible people to engage in this manner of you know, human trafficking? Four million kids every year are being trafficked here in our country. And, and, and that's, you know, that's not even considering what's happening all the way around the world. Another example of, of my concerns can be seen in the actions of the terrorists who invaded southern Israel just one month ago. Listen, they not only murdered more than 1,000 people, but they also captured more than 200. And here we are a month later, and they're still torturing those who were kidnapped, some of whom are little kids. 
It's horrific. And, and at the same time, the, the same terrorists are also using their own civilians as human shields, as the wealthy billionaires who run Hamas continue to promise more money to the Muslims who are willing to engage in jihad against Israel. And as we consider the Hamas terrorists who are still holding those hostages that they kidnapped a month ago, I'm left with the questions you know, about the reasons for why God allows kids to suffer in these sorts of ways. And if we accept Job's perspective here, then it's because the Almighty is failing to set the right time for their judgment. Is that the case? Is that the reality that God is somehow failing because he forgot about the judgment day or something? Well, with this question in mind, I want to continue to consider Job's perspective here. Let's turn our attention back to Job chapter 24. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 10, here Job goes on to declare, they cause the poor to go naked without clothing, and they take away the sheaves from the hungry. They press out oil within their walls and tread wine presses, yet suffer thirst. The dying groan in the city and the souls of the wounded cry out, yet God does not charge them. With wrong. Here in these verses, we find Job reminding his friends about those, you know, who end up naked for some reason or another. And so here we find that they solve their problem by taking the clothes of the poor, you know, and 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 they steal from the poor. They 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 take from the weak. And after detailing the ways that wicked people engage in these acts of evil, Job here then goes on to insist that the Lord simply ignores the pain and the suffering of the innocent, and He doesn't charge the wicked with any wrongdoing. Now, as we consider Job's perspective, it's important for us to realize that Job is probably referring to his own experience. He's probably pulling from his own experience, which he recently suffered. Remember, his servants had been killed and his livestock had been stolen. His crops had been burned and his children perished in a supernatural storm. And after crying out to the Lord, he soon found himself surrounded by his three close friends who started accusing him of living in sin. And I'm going to guess that, that, you know, after all was said and done, he's like, you know, I cried out to the Lord, and, and rather than receiving help, I got these three guys to come along and just accuse me falsely. I'm going to guess that we've all experienced similar situations at some point in time, situations that cause us to question the goodness of God. I'm, of course, referring to those times when things have gotten so bad that, that we finally cry out to the Lord, and as we cry out to the Lord, the next thing that happens to us is even worse. It's like, wait, wait a minute, I just, I just cried out to the Lord for help and, and things got worse. How is God good in the midst of that? Rather than enjoying the immediate relief that comes from heartfelt prayer, you know, the Lord at times will you know, allow the enemy to ramp up his attacks until we find ourselves surrounded by the servants of Satan on every side. You know, the miserable comforters come, who come along and say, well, it's your fault that you're, that you're dealing with this. You know, it's like you're in the midst of suffering and, and your good friends come along and say, yeah, well, I told you, told you so. Remember when you were going to do this, this, and that? And I told you not to? Yeah, you should listen to me. Thanks. Thanks for that, Job's counselors. There are those times when we wonder, why is the Lord allowing the enemy to crush us with continuous attacks when we just need some relief? And that's where Job was coming from. It's like, yeah, he, you know, he, he lost everything. He lost his kids. He, he lost his income. He lost his livestock. He lost his crops. He lost his servants. And he cries out to the Lord and he gains three miserable comforters. 
Thanks, God. As we consider his perspective, you know, I'm guessing that we all wonder why the Lord allows sinful people to engage in the evil acts of murder and adultery only to then allow us to suffer things on top of all of that. And I I want to consider how Job uh, puts it here in our text tonight. If you would look with me here, uh, once again, at Job uh, 24, we'll pick up at verse 13. Here, Job goes on to declare this. He says, there are those who rebel against the light. They do not know its ways, nor abide in its paths. The murderer rises with the light. He kills the poor and needy, and in the night he is like a thief. The eye of the adulterer waits for the twilight, saying, no eye will see me. And he disguises his face. In the dark they break into houses, which they marked for themselves in the daytime. They do not know the light. For the morning is the same to them as the shadow of death. If someone recognizes them, they are in the terrors of the shadow of death. Here in these verses, we find Job, he's reminding his friends about the murderers and the adulterers and the burglars who were out there rebelling against the light of the Lord. And as we consider what Job was saying in this context... It seems to me that he was wondering why the Lord was allowing the murderers and the adulterers and the masked burglars to to serve the enemy in the darkness of their own depravity. Why was the Lord allowing all of this wickedness to continue? Similar fashion, I'm sure we're all wondering why the Lord allows mass murderers to continue committing their horrific crimes all across our country. And why is God allowing sexual perversion to increase as the LGBTQIA plus agenda continues to advance unchecked in public schools and, and, and in different places, libraries and, and you know, all these sorts of places? Why, why won't the Lord provide us with leaders who will rise up and punish the masked masses who continue to burglarize businesses until they're forced to close their doors? And, and, and no doubt that all of this is having an effect on the, on the prices because every company that is being robbed multiple times over has to raise the prices that we pay to make up for the cost. Why does the Lord allow sinners to accomplish their evil desires? Why doesn't he quickly you know, destroy the wicked, just as Job's friends had warned him? Because that was their point to Job. Hey, you've been engaging in wickedness, so the Lord's going to destroy you. And Job's saying, yeah, really? Are you not looking at the world? If Job, you know, if, 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 if Job is truly wicked... Then, you know, and the Lord is truly punishing because of it. Why is the Lord failing to punish all these other people out there? And with this question in mind, we should consider how Job then used the warnings of his friends against them. And in order to explain what I mean, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 24. Here we find Job using his friends' warnings against them. And if you would look with me there, beginning at verse 18. There he declares, they should be swift on the face of the waters. Their portion should be cursed in the earth so that no one would turn into the way of their vineyards. As drought and heat consume the snow waters, so the grave consumes those who have sinned. The womb should forget him. The worm should feed sweetly on him. He should be remembered no more. And wickedness should be broken like a tree, for he preys on the barren who do not bear and does no good for the widow. Now here in these verses we find Job, he's actually using the arguments of his friends against them. 
I'll remind you that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they were all of the opinion that Job was being punished for his wickedness. And in response, Job takes the time here to highlight all of the criminals, all of the kidnappers, all of the killers who were out there living high on the hog. And now here in these verses, Job is effectively arguing, if you guys are right, then why aren't all of the rest of these evil people being punished immediately? With this perspective in mind, let's take a closer look at the sarcastic tone that Job was using here in these verses. Notice again in verse 18, Job declares, they should be swift on the face of the waters. Their portion should be cursed in the earth so that no one would turn into the way of their vineyards. As drought and heat consume the snow waters, so the grave consumes those who have sinned. The womb should forget him. The worm should feed sweetly on him. He should be remembered no more. And wickedness should be broken like a tree, for he preys on the barren who do not bear and does no good for the widow. As we take a closer look at this paragraph, we find the translators of the New King James Version here inserting this word should six times. These things should be the case, but they're not. Remember, Job began this chapter by insisting that the Lord had yet to judge the wicked. It's back in verse 1 where Job asks, Why doesn't the Almighty bring the wicked to judgment? Why must the godly wait for him in vain? Now, here in these verses, Job is effectively saying the wicked should disappear like foam down a river, and yet they're still here. The wicked should be cursed in the earth so that no one would turn into the way of their vineyards, and yet the wicked are still growing their grapes. The wicked should be consumed like snow in the heat, and yet they have yet to be sent to the grave. The wicked should be turned into food for the maggots, and yet they're still filling the earth with their violence. The wicked should be forever forgotten like a tree that no longer bears fruit, and yet the Lord allows them to continue oppressing the barren and the widow. To sum it all up, Job was asking his friends, you know, listen, if you really think that the Lord is punishing me for engaging in some manner of unrepentant sin, then why is he withholding his punishment from the criminals and the kidnappers and the killers? And while this most certainly was an excellent question, Job is still struggling to make sense of the reason for why the Lord was punishing him because he still, fall, uh, you know, he still falls into this false dichotomy of thinking that it's the Lord punishing and so the question is, does he deserve it or not? That being the case, you know, he, Job was left with an incorrect understanding of God's perfect plan for why he allows evil to exist in this world. And to explain my point, let's consider the final paragraph found here in Job chapter 24. It's beginning there at verse 22. There, Job, Job goes on to declare this. He says, God draws the mighty away with his power. He rises up, but no man is sure of life. He gives them security. And they rely on it. Yes, his eyes are on their ways. They are exalted for a little while. Then they are gone. They are brought low. They are taken out of the way like all others. They dry out like the heads of grain. Now, if it is not so, who will prove me a liar and make my speech worth nothing? Now, here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Job. He's struggling to understand why. Why? From his perspective, he's wondering why the Lord was giving security to sinners. 
He was wondering, why is the Lord exalting those who are evil? Not only that, but Job was also wondering why the Lord was allowing the wicked to enjoy the same quantity of life as those who were living for the Lord. If the Lord really does want to punish the wicked immediately, then why do the wicked live as long as the righteous? In order to you know, sum up his perspective with simplicity, I want to remind you of a statement that Job made back in chapter 9. It's Job 9 verse 24. There he declares, The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who else could it be? In other words, Job was certain that the Lord was the one who had given the earth into the hands of those who were wicked. And as we consider the current leaders, well, I'm thinking he's right. The Lord is the one who has handed the world into the, into the hands of the wicked. How many political leaders in the world today would you consider to be a Christian? I, I, I couldn't find a, a, you know, a good study on this, and so, and so I can't pr- provide you with you know, a percentage point here. But, uh, but you know, just, just think it through, like you know, of all the world leaders that, that you're aware of. How many would you consider to be a Christian? And, and no, I'm not talking about you know, the political Christians who use faith for political gain. You know, I'm not talking about the ones who claim to be Christian but you know, never darken the door of any church. I'm talking about true believers who really submit themselves to our Savior, Jesus Christ. How many political leaders throughout the entire world do you think are truly born-again believers? The chances are the number is extremely low. I'm guessing that the number is even lower than than we might guess. And yet, I still want to remind you of the statement that Paul made in Romans 13 where he declares... There is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So as we consider the political spectrum of the entire world, of every nation, of every, you know, every place in the world, and as we consider the extremely small number of leaders who have probably bowed a knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, we still have to realize that all of the leaders throughout the entire world were appointed by God. Because that's what the Bible says. And so with that, I can't help but to wonder, you know, why, why would the Lord appoint so many evil people into these positions of power? And, and listen, it gets worse. I want to remind you that the Lord has allowed Satan to act as the ruler of this world. As a matter of fact, it's in John chapter 12 where Jesus refers to the devil as the ruler of this world. Or in other words, the the devil is the one who is the ruler of this evil system that we call the world. And in Ephesians chapter 2, Satan is also called the prince of the power of the air. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Satan is called the God of this age. And, and you better believe that our sovereign God is, is the one who is over all of that. I 
And with all this in mind, we shouldn't be surprised to learn then that the, uh, that the Lord is actually the one who has appointed evil leaders, placing them in political power as he allows them to rule over the evil people who want to pursue their evil desires. Now, if a nation will repent and turn to the Lord and truly seek God, you better believe that he's going to raise up godly leaders who will lead them into a godly direction. Proof of my point is found in the book of Jonah. Just go read the story of Jonah and the way that Nineveh repented and the Lord relented from destroying them. But the nation who desires to pursue the wicked things of this world, God says, okay, well, here's your leaders then. Here's the leaders you want. And yet, even in the midst of all of this, listen, we must not fail to realize that the Lord is patiently enduring the evil ways of the wicked so that some might be saved through the merciful patience of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we consider what God allows and as we consider the reason for why God allows wicked people to engage in all manner of wickedness, we must not fail to recognize that he's allowing this so that they might come to the end of themselves and realize their need to repent and turn to Jesus Christ. I like the way that Jesus explains it. You know, after he heard the Pharisees complaining about the company that he was keeping, it's actually in Matthew chapter 9, there the apostle Matthew declares that it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Christian, listen, if you're wondering why the Lord suffers long with those who are wicked, well, it's because Christ Jesus came to, to seek and save those who are sinners. And we can be thankful that he's patient with those who have fallen short of his glory. The Apostle Peter put it best when he assured us that the Lord is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, this is not to suggest that he hasn't set a day of judgment. Job's question about you know, God missing the day of judgment, it was completely loaded. And the reason why is because there is a day of judgment, and it is, it is going to come. And it's on that day when the Lord is going to punish those who refuse to repent of their wickedness. But until that day, he's patiently giving every person a chance to repent and trust in Jesus Christ so that they might be saved by faith in the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And with this as the goal, I encourage you to remember that the Lord is actually calling every Christian to lovingly lead the lost 
to the foot of the cross so that they might repent of their wickedness. And I realize it's exhausting to endure with the evil deeds of wicked people. As I continue to look at what's happening throughout the world, as we continue to look at the increase in violent crimes and, 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 and kidnappings and human trafficking and all these sorts of things, it's exhausting. And, and you know, look, if you're of the same mindset as me, then, then we look at all of this and wonder, oh man, when is Jesus going to save us from all of this? And yet every day that he patiently waits is one more day that he grants wicked people the opportunity to repent and be saved. And with that perspective, we should then follow in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus Christ by walking in that patience And helping those who are wicked to understand how much the Lord loves them and wants to save them from everlasting punishment. Is it exhausting? Of course it is. Does it take more patience than we can muster in our own flesh? Of course it does. And yet that's what we're called to do. And by his power, we can patiently help the wicked people of this world to receive the long-suffering love of the Lord Jesus Christ by simply accomplishing the great commission. And so with that, I encourage you, let's go out and share the good news that Jesus Christ came to save those who are wicked, that Jesus Christ came to seek and save the lost. Let's share this good news with those who are lost so that they might repent of their wickedness and turn to Jesus Christ so that they might be saved. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you.